Hello, everyone, and welcome to Becker's 2021 Women's in Diversity Leadership Virtual Event. I'm Erica Carbajal, writer and reporter with Becker's Hospital Review, and I'll be your moderator for today's session, Finding Your Voice, Getting a Seat at the Table and Negotiating Your Worth. So while strides have been made to promote a diverse and inclusive workplace culture across all fields, there's still plenty of progress to be made, particularly in healthcare, with a recent study finding just 15% of CEOs in health systems and insurance companies are women. And today I'm joined by four excellent leaders to discuss why it's important to go beyond simply getting a seat at the table, best practices for negotiating on behalf of your teams and more. So before we start off um, and get into our questions, I'd like for each of our panelists to just briefly introduce themselves and share a bit about their organizations as well. So Nikki, do you want to start us off today? Sure. Hi, I'm Nikki Sumter. I am the Executive Vice President and Chief Administrative Officer for Atlantic Health System. And, and Erica? Erica Joy? Absolutely. I'm Erica Joy Daniels. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Good to be here today. My name is Erica Joy Daniels, and I serve as the Chief Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Officer at Advocate of War Healthcare in Wisconsin and Illinois. Welcome. And Shelly? Hi, I'm Shelly Shore. I'm the Chief Financial Officer for the Northern California Division of Common Spirit Health. Common Spirit is a national healthcare company. Happy to be here today. And last but not least, Dr. Lisa Herbert. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Herbert. I am the founder and CEO of Just the Right Balance. My organization helps organizations to retain and develop high-performing physician leaders, and I'm an executive leadership coach. Well, thank you all so much again for joining us today, and we're so happy to have such a great panel lineup of women leaders, so thanks again. And with that, we'll go ahead and dive into the question. So first, let's go ahead and go back to the title of this session. So can you differentiate between getting a seat at the table and truly being seen and heard at the table? and perhaps share an example of, of what that has looked like in your own career so far. Shelly, I, I can start with you on this one. Okay, great, yeah. You know, getting a seat at the table and being heard are completely two different things. Getting a seat at the table is actually difficult sometimes, specifically when you're new in your career. And what I have found often works is um, to simply ask, I'd like to be a part of this conversation and to be um, intentional you know, Cheryl Sanders said in her book, Lean In, not to take the back seat around the edges, but to actually go sit at the table, literally at the board table. And I think we have to be as women more intentional about making sure that we're um, taking care of ourselves in the moment and not just being polite, sometimes to our own detriment. And then once you do have a seat at the table, making sure that you're heard. Don't let people talk over you. Say, excuse me, please let me finish. Um, and you know, you should have a mentor or a sponsor the first time and, and say, I need to be a part of this conversation. And over time, if you find that you're not allowed a seat at the table, then you're not in the right organization. Absolutely. It sounds like being a self-advocate and like you said, being intentional there is, is important. And Nikki, I'm seeing some head nods. Do you have anything to add here? Absolutely. There have been times, um, as Shelly mentioned, um, where I know that I have not used my voice. Um, but it is so key to kind of self-reflect. And you know how you feel when you don't, right? You don't feel like you've 
been able to deliver what you needed to deliver to deliver in that moment. And so I think self-reflection is always good, but I do believe what needs to happen in those moments when you don't use your voice at the table, how do you go back and regroup after the meeting, um, having conversations, the relationships that you form, they're just as key as being at the table. So, um, you know, there have been, I've had my moments where, you know, I just have not leaned in, um, but know that you can always recover from that. And, and Erica Joy, I'll go to you on this one next. You know, it's, as you were talking, it took me back last night, I was my, talking to my son, and uh, he's in theater and he was rehearsing some of his songs for his play. And he asked his dad to sing the higher note and the lower note because he said he wanted to make sure where did his voice fit in. And I think it's so important once we get that seat, because you're right, Shelly, the seat and the voice, it's two totally different things. One's the invitation, one's the access, right? Um, but doing our homework so when we're in the room, it fits in, whether it's the missing part, because often we have the brilliant ideas or the aspiration or the passion. And there's something that's, you know, melodic that we're, we're offering something that's missing. So how do we do our homework before we get in and know where to fit in and know where to offer it? And I also dare say that once we have that, how do we make sure that we're bringing someone else in the seat next to us? You know, we've all been to a conference room where you pull a chair up, you know, how do we do the proverbial pulling the chair up for someone else that on our team or someone else aware if we have to be the one who's the access maker? Um, so that we can make room and demonstrate for others that there are there is more perspective to be learned from. Absolutely. I think you both raised great points there about first off finding where your voice fits in. And then Nikki, as you said, you know, you're you're gonna recognize those moments where you leave and you're like, I didn't get to express everything I wanted to, and, and going back and self-reflecting on that. And I think this is a really interesting question. So I want to make sure we get to everyone on this one. I know we're limited on time, but but Dr. Lisa Herbert, anything else from you here? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I agree definitely with, with what everyone else has said. And when I was thinking about the question, one of the things that came to mind was a quote that sometimes always resonates with me when I'm speaking to other leaders, when I'm coaching other leaders. And that is that leadership is more than about the title or position is really about the example you set and it's about actually what you do the action that you bring when you come with that leadership you know role so getting a seat at the table really just is the sort of thing that comes along with the title or the position but once you're there it becomes important for you to understand what it means to have a voice once you're there and that is really by leading by example and it's also by showing action showing results showing the things that you know that you can bring to that table so that your voice can be heard and you can be seen absolutely well thank you all for your insight on that one next year we'll talk a bit about um negotiating salaries so so research from northwestern university's kellogg school of Man management showed that male ev evaluators penalize female candidates more than male candidates for starting a negotiation. Um, they then, the study leaders then weighed in on some common missteps that women should avoid in these high stakes conversations. So one of them being not to ask permission when initiating a negotiation um, in an interview. So what's your reaction here? And do you have any other advice for what women should or should not do in these conversations? And Erica Joy, I'll start with you on this one. Sure, you know, I, I used to be really guilty of this crime. I would ask my old leaders, can I ask you a question? And he would always arrest me with that. Why are you asking for permission, you know, to, to express yourself? And I realized it was a bad habit. And I thought, what is the root of that? 
feeling like I had to, like, like I had to request space, right? Um, I, I think it's really important that we come with courage and with a confidence, you know, and it teeters to arrogance, but I think there's a courage and a confidence, even if we have to test some of those conversations out with others, who we, have, we know are in trusted spaces, um, to be able to, to, to raise that and, and have done, you know, all the due diligence that we need to come with the question that comes from a very fully informed place. Um, pe people are looking for that. And I think uh, information also, for me, fuels my, my, my confidence and my certainty, um, especially when I've seen and learned from others and then find myself to make sure I'm not repeating those same, you know, bad mistakes. And Dr. Dr. Herbert, I'm curious from your sort of coaching and consulting perspective, your perspective on this. Yeah, so this is definitely something that comes up a lot, especially for women, you know, in leadership roles. And um, as you probably know, but if you haven't, you know, seen by now, I like quotes, so I'm just going to say another one. <laughs> but um, so Kamala Harris, when she was running for, you know, president, she was speaking to a young group of women and basically said that you never have to ask permission in order to lead, right? When you want to lead, lead. And I believe the same is true for anything, you know, asking a question, negotiating. You never really have to ask for permission for that. Um, you're entitled to be able to have an opinion. You're entitled to be able to ask a question. And it should never come with any sort of guilt or feeling bad about doing that. So, you know, as I'm coaching clients, I try to relay that same sort of information, that same confidence to them and to help them to realize that they don't have to really carry around this um, guilt or shame about asking for what they need and for what they want. Sure, and Shelly, do you have anything to add on this one? Yeah, I do. You know, one of the things that um, really struck me that Nikki said was about um, the relationships because a lot of earning your seat at the table and building your reputation is building those relationships behind the scenes. And that really, that is exactly how you start to build your career is you become a trusted colleague. So I want to make sure that I wanted to reiterate that because that was such a good point, Nikki. And, you know, one of the things I find too, women often feel guilty about negotiating or um, salaries. And like you said, Erica Joy, about asking permission or saying, I'm sorry. I, I find that's more of a feminine trait than a male one. And um, I think part of it, we have been we have faced as, as, as women, we have faced um, some sometimes harder pathways to careers. There's less women executives, less women CFOs. And so we sometimes um, internally feel a little bit of the imposter syndrome, or maybe we don't belong, where um, historically men don't struggle with those same internal questionings. They just think, why couldn't I do that job? And women will sometimes go through a litany of reasons why they may not be qualified instead of just putting their foot in there. And I find it's something you have to actually talk to someone about. A coach is great and telling yourself, being prepared for the negotiation and say, you know, I bring value to this organization and here's some of my accomplishments. And um, this is why I think that I should be able to um, reach this level of pay or responsibility. And it, it really is a prep work and it is really trying to get your own head out of the game and just focus on your abilities and your skills. And it, it is sometimes difficult because of the challenges we faced coming up through our careers. For sure, I think you raise a great point there about the imposter syndrome, especially with women. And, and in, these, um, in these conversations, how you sort of can naturally just start with, you know, here's my experience, here's why I'm qualified instead of 
running back through your mind why you might not be and, and instead of asking permission there. And Nikki, anything else from you on this one? Absolutely. So um, certainly uh, be prepared, as Shelly mentioned, being prepared is the most important thing. Many times, you know, you know that you're going for an interview, right? So let's anticipate that a job offer is coming. And so in that anticipation, um, there is a lot of research out there. Uh, there are many browsers that you could use and do some search on the internet to find out what, are, what is the compensation typically like for uh, that particular position. Then if you know other executives, do some research. There are executives um, who would love to coach you on how to have the conversation. But I think the most important thing is be prepared, do your research, and then write your script. Write your script on how you're going to ask, right? Um, so you do, yes, to avoid the, can I ask you a question, as Erica Joy said, write what you want to say and then say it, right? Just say it, practice it, um, and know what you're willing to walk away from. That's the most important thing. Try to make sure you know what your targets are so that as you go through the negotiation process, you know what you can give and take on, what you're willing to, because you have all this research. Absolutely, Nikki. And I think what you said just reminded me of, of something else from the study, and it was when you're in these negotiations, also it, going off what Erica Joy said, don't start by asking, can I ask you a question? And also don't start by asking, is there room for, you know, this much? Never do that. Never don't do ask that because then you're setting yourself up for just a hard no. Um, now next year, as it applies to female leaders, are there any situations where your silence is louder than your voice? Or do you have any, any potential examples there? Dr. Herbert, I'll kick, up, kick it to you on this one. Okay, great. So certainly there are definitely um, situations where silence is better than maybe speaking up. I think it really depends on the environment. It depends on the situation. Um, I think that as leaders, we have to realize when it's important to speak up. It's the old adage of knowing to pick your battles. So sort of know what's important, set priorities for yourself and for your team so that if you feel like you do have to speak up about something that you know that those are the issues that you're going to speak to first and maybe some of the other issues you silence for now because they're not as important. So knowing when you need more information also before you actually speak up and have an answer or, or say something. Sometimes there's a period that you need to just be silent and gather data and gather information before you actually speak up and, and speak to a particular you know, circumstance. So during those times, obviously silence is definitely the way to go as opposed to speaking up. So it's really about prioritizing, picking your battles, knowing when it's important to speak up. And then those other instances, knowing when to, you kind of need to fall back, gather some more data, gather research before you, know, you speak up. Absolutely. Definitely hearing that, that prioritize and, and educate first there. And Shelly, I saw some head nods from you. Do you have anything? To, to I agree. Completely. I found um, silence to be the most powerful in two specific situations. One is, um, like Dr. Lisa Herbert said, listen first. So you know, when I'm in any sort of a meeting, a strategy meeting, a finance meeting, any meeting, I prefer to hear the room first before I weigh in. I prefer to understand what's important to everyone. Um, I like to listen first 
and, and, and then um, assess. So I find that's a more powerful than when you do make a statement, you understand where the, where everybody's opinions and their passions are, and you can address those. So I find that to be one. So silence first, speak last. Um, the other is in any negotiation, speak your point and be quiet because people tend to over talk and you can hurt your negotiation and people inherently want to fill that silence. So one of the things that you can do, the smartest thing in any negotiation is say, I would like this and this is why, and then stop talking for a minute <laughs> because you, it, our nature wants to over talk. It's not comfortable to have silence, but it's very powerful in a negotiation to wait it out. Absolutely. I think you raise a great point there about sort of, especially in a negotiation, Shelley, about letting there be that moment of silence too after you you do you make your your request. And, and Erica Joy and Nikki, and anything else from, from both of you on this one before we move on? Yeah, I just one one example reminded me of a young woman I mentor, and we were talking about this, right? Speaking less and when 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 is the right time for your voice or for a pause to happen for your voice to come. And it, it reminds me of a time where she was in a meeting and there was some discussion and someone raised a joke that was extremely culturally offensive. And her not laughing, to me, that silence, when Dr. Herbert talked about falling back, it caused the, the rest of the room to fall back, you know, because they're looking like everyone thinks this is hilarious that we're talking about transportation issues and you're stoic right now. And it gave her a space then after that silence to raise her voice. So I think there's some things we make sure we don't collude, you know, that we don't just get, you know, feel like we, we have to go along with the crowd. Sometimes that silence can make others pause and ask you why you're even quiet at the time. I agree. Silence and uh, body language, right? So body language as well, you know, just um, not engaging and sitting back and just even looking off at times can certainly... Uh, you know, disarm uh, those who are involved. But one, one thing I will say is a good leader or a good facilitator leading a discussion will try to pull you in and try to make it inclusive, right? So when, you, when you're feeling that you're in a space where you can't use your voice and no one around the table says, you know, Erica Joy, what do you think? then I think that's that's an issue in itself. And pay attention to those things. How are other voices being drawn out? Um, and that's when you get to better creativity and innovation as well, even beyond a negotiation. It is, pay attention to the dynamics that are going on in the room. Absolutely, reading a room. And then Erica Joy and Nikki, both of your comments are a great segue into the next question here. So. A study from 2019 from Lenin and McKinsey found women of color are more likely than their white counterparts to be interrupted and spoken over in work settings. And a third of women of color in that same study also reported that others had taken credit for their ideas in meetings. So for man managers and leaders who are, who are watching today, what are some concrete active measures that they can take in meetings or other exchanges to fight these sort of transgressions? Dr. Herbert, I'll start with you here. Okay, great. Another um, great topic to discuss is definitely something that comes up a lot for women in leadership roles, and especially for women of color in, in leadership roles. And the first thing that I always like to talk about is to make sure that you firmly believe that you belong in the room. So it really becomes important for you to have and to go into, you know, your role and in, into those rooms, believing that you belong there. 
a lot of times if we kind of present ourselves with anxieties and fears and doubts about what it is that we're supposed to do and, our, and about our roles, it kind of gives other people sometimes permission to act in those ways. So going in with a positive mindset, really believing you belong in the room is really, really important. Um, also just know that those transgressions or those types of behaviors that others exert is really not about you. It's really about their insecurities. So also, you know, really realize that, you know, it's hard to say not to take it personal, but to really realize that it's really not about you. It's really about that person and, and their um, insecurities. And then if you're in the room and you are interrupted or someone's speaking over you, really just take stock of kind of what's happening. Who's the person that's really um, imparting those behaviors? What's the topic that's being discussed? Um, is this this person's first time doing this? Sort of read, you know, what's going on so that when you are able to have a discussion with that person, and you should have a discussion with that person afterwards, you can really sort of recap and talk about it and bring up the discussion in a way that you make sure that you make the person understand how that made you feel. So again, this might be one of those things where you might be silent, like we just talked about in the room, as opposed to really speaking up at that time, because you really want to just take inventory and take stock of what happened. Um, a lot of times, you know, that people will take credit sometimes for things that you do, your ideas and your thoughts. So in those instances, it really becomes important for us to remember that any ideas, any results, anything that, anything that we have accomplished, we really have to own it. We really have to speak up about it. We have to document it so that there's always, you know, something that you can, you know, rely back on so that people understand where the initial idea came from if you ever have to, you know, ever prove it. Um, making sure your name is on the agenda in meetings. You know, if that topic comes up and it's being discussed, your name should be on that agenda so that you can be um, called upon to speak about it. So those are just, you know, some of the things. I'm sure there's more. I don't want to take up too much more time, but those are just some of the things that come to mind when I'm thinking about, you know, this, this particular topic. Definitely. Some, some really, really great points there. And I think something that you said at the beginning there is, making sure you believe you belong there. It sounds so small, but, you know, really is important um, in terms of all the surveys and all, all of your perspective that we've heard of, of just walking in with a sense of confidence into a room is so important, not just for yourself, but for everybody else in that room as well. And Erica Joy, do, what, what are some other, um, other ways yeah. to fight some of these transgressions? And, and Maybe just quickly offer, find the teachable moments. So, you know, you don't have to call the behaviors in the large forms, but you pull someone aside and say, you know, I wasn't quite finished my thought, you know, um, or do you realize that you, sometimes people don't, aren't aware. Sometimes they're very aware, but, but even if they're aware, knowing that they're, you know, kind of being confronted or brought um, higher awareness around their behavior, it could change something. And let them know not just that they did it, but what impact it had, you know, and I would say model what we want others to do differently but do it very intentionally. So if we're doing a presentation or we're providing something, say, I really want to highlight, you know, three of my team members or two colleagues that really pulled it out because, you know, team, it really is about us making sure that we recognize, you know, the contributions and the thoughts of others. Almost like you have to overdo it so people can see I'm, I'm being very adamant and intentional. And so model the things that you want others to pull off around you. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you said, 
goes off what Dr. Herbert said about that confidence again. You know, maybe you're not comfortable having to to interrupt someone and say, hey, I wasn't done speaking, but hopefully you only have to do that one or two times before before you know it's it stops. And and Nikki, anything else from you here? Sure. I think you can also say, as I was saying, right, you know, as soon as, soon as that person uh, completes their sentence, you can say, oh, okay, as I was saying, right? So you can do it in a way that, you know, everyone in the room can pretty much figure out that you were speaking, right? And the attention turns back to you. Um, but that happens quite often when people, all of the people around the table are passionate about what they want to talk about and um, a particular topic. And one of the things that I've learned, I've, I've moved, you can hear that I am not from the New Jersey area, which is where Atlantic Health System is based. And I am from the South and I am so used to pausing and letting people complete their sentence, right? That's how I was, you know, raised. And so um, it is rude to interrupt, but not in a work setting anymore. It is people will just start talking. And so what I do is I stop talking and I let them exhaust themselves. And then I'll say what I need to say. So there's a way you can do it to draw the attention back to you. And then, you know, as my fellow panelists said, you can have conversations with folks after the meeting, right? You can do it in a way that just says, okay, the next time we're together, this is how I expect for you to treat me. <laughs> You're going to let me talk, okay? Let me talk. But there's a way that you can put some humor to it, and it still goes off. But if it continues, the crucial conversation does need to happen, where there may not be laughter, right? Uh, so I would just encourage people, going back to how we started, it is use your voice. And Shelly, any other suggestions for, for leaders or managers on, on this topic from you? You know, I think these ladies covered it beautifully, but I would add a couple of things. Um, one is to make sure as, as a woman to, that we watch the way we present and our tone, because I myself turn into mom and start lecturing sometimes. And that's another way people will talk over you. So make sure that you're coming across the way you want to, first of all, that's one thing. And the other thing is I would really encourage women to um, help support each other because if I'm a senior executive in a meeting and someone talks over another woman I could step in for her and say, let's let, um, let's let Lisa finish, you know, let's let Erica Joy finish her statement and then we'll bring in your thought. Because I think that what I talked about is our battles coming up. We often forget to stand up for one another. And I think that's really important and, and we can do that and we should be more intentional about that. Absolutely. And next year, people tend to perceive that women are more risk averse than men, but can this assumption actually benefit women um, at the negotiating table? N Nikki, I'll start with you on this one. Thank you, Erica. Certainly, um, you know, it can be disarming. You know, when people have this impression of you, that you are something that you may not. I am very... Um, I'm a, very much a risk taker, but when I'm interviewing, that doesn't come across all the time. And I'm going to use this as uh, a negotiation around salary. You know, it can be disarming for the other person um, if you suddenly start asking for things that they weren't expecting from you. That can work to your advantage, right? So you don't have to always put every card on the table, um, uh, whether you take risks or not. You don't even have to have the discussion. But I think what people 
you know, people make snap judgments about you, use that to your advantage. Don't let that be the detractor of, or the negative thought. How do you turn that into a positive? And I'll let my fellow panelists um, add anything they'd like. Lisa, anything from you on this one? Yeah, this is interesting because um, I was reading something earlier around the, the risk at first, and it mentioned a different terminology for women and not really classifying them as being risk averse, but risk aware. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that that's really where we're coming from. It's not that we don't want to take risks, it's that we are very mindful about taking risks, we're mindful about danger. Um, we take time to evaluate things. You know, we don't just kind of shoot in the dark. We think about if the end result or the reward is really going to justify the risk that we're taking. So for women, that's sort of the way I think a lot of us may approach certain situations, approach negotiations. It's around being risk aware. And that can really probably, um, you know, help us in terms of negotiating, you know, because, they don't really know how we're thinking, but in the back of our minds, we're thinking long-term strategy, <laughs> right? And what's really going to be the outcome. So, yeah. So, so that's my my addition to you know this topic around the the risk of birth. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll go ahead and move on here, just in the interest of time. So, we'll talk about negotiating on behalf of your teams for a bit. So. Obviously, sal salary negotiations would look different than negotiating on behalf of your teams. So can, can you expand a bit on how these, these situations may differ and perhaps a best practice for negotiating on behalf of your teams versus, versus yourself? Erica Joy, I'll start with you here. Yeah, I, I find I think I'm a little bit more bold when I'm negotiating on behalf of others. Um, I just more courageous. I'm working on that. Um, but I, I think it's bringing the voice of others in addition to yours to the table. So if I'm working on negotiating for something for my team, whether it's for their compensation, whether it's for more support for them, I go and know I'm, 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 I want to fight for them I, with that kind of determination. And I've socialized what I want to negotiate with others who I know would be endorsers or supporters of those. So that's why I'm not just saying it's not the work that I do, but you know what the chief medical officer mentioned, you know, our chief nursing officer. And I, I use that. I use that. And, it, I can, and I'm able to use an authentic way because if they ever did go back to those individuals, I do confirm it's something that the leaders would speak of as well. So I do think bringing additional voices of perspective to your conversation and make it more holistic and benefit the individual. Sure, bring, bringing other leaders in there. And Shelly, seeing some head nods there. Yeah, you know, it is, it's always easier to negotiate on the behalf of others because you are their leader and you're protecting and supporting them and you know that their career growth is really, you're the one that's going to be able to keep them happy in their organization. I always want to see the, the people on my team grow and be supported and be paid what they're worth. And so I'm very passionate about that. It is harder to do that for yourself. And I will say that it took me a very long time to learn to do that for myself. And, um, and I think you just have to come at it with, you know, this isn't being selfish or greedy. This is saying this is what the market is for this role. Um, this is what I bring to the table, and I um, I find that I feel I'm worthless. So, you know, and I think that's harder to do, but you absolutely have to do it. For all the things we've talked about today, you have to prepare your discussion and all of that, but it is much easier to do it for your team or for someone else. I um, I have no qualms negotiating for anybody else, but it is more difficult for myself even today. 
it's so interesting that you say that one of the studies, I can't remember which one, but one of the ones that when I was doing background, um, developing these questions, you know, they it said the same thing that women find it tend to find it so much harder to negotiate on behalf of themselves versus their team and sort of just the findings were encouraging to take that same motivation and, and Sometimes you got to do it for yourself too. Um, I'll add one um, anecdotal comment. Um, we had a, a salary change um, recently for my position, and we we all had to discuss that. My male peers had no problems, <laughs> even though I I did have to you know get my facts and all of those things. My my male peers had absolutely no problems um, thinking what they were worth and asking for it. So that's just an it's just a, a real life thing that it really does it really is different. We'll go back to some, in my, in my introductory remarks, I mentioned a study about the 15% of health system and insurance company CEOs are women. And at the same time, that same one found that companies with female CEOs were more likely to have more women sitting on the board and in other senior positions. So, so there's kind of, you know, a discrepancy there. So how can we ensure more women take on leadership positions when CEO gender diversity is still so disproportionate. Lisa, can I start with you here? Sure. Um, so I think it's really important for uh, everyone to sort of um, take stock in the importance of, of making sure that we have women in leadership roles. So that comes from individuals, organizations, you know, men, everyone sort of has to rally around the importance of us increasing the number of women in these roles. So in, in looking at what's needed, what's needed are allies. So we need men to be allies in terms of making sure that they're supportive of women being in, in leadership roles. Um, women also need sponsors. So they need people who will speak up and advocate for them to be in these roles. Um, women need training. So they need the training necessary to be able to have the skills that they need to be successful um, in leadership roles. A lot of times women are put in these roles or given the um, opportunity to lead, but then not given the resources to be successful or not given the right environment to be successful. Um, and then we need to have a work, the work culture. The work culture just really needs to be inclusive or more inclusive so that women again can thrive and be able to um, you know, be a, a CEO of a, of a health company. Absolutely. And just in the interest of time, I'd love to have each of you weigh in on this last one here before we close, close this off. So let's start with some advice for women who are stepping into their first leadership position. So if you're thinking back to your early days as a leader, is there anything you would do differently or, or encourage colleagues to be mindful of there? Erica Joy, I'll begin with you here. Yeah, I mean, I, it's about the first time, right? I think about my first shift in elevation also reminds me of the first time I walked in heels, right? <laughs> and my godmother and my sister taught me. And um, each time I got a new pair, when the height got higher, um, the things that they told me about my heels, I have, you know, likened to my leadership, that it's going to be wobbly, right? Um, but you just got to practice walking it. You got to walk in your leadership, walk in places where everyone's not watching right away, find someone that can help you with your stride. Um, you know, but you, you got to go at it. And each time you go from kitten heel to one inch to two inch to three inch, you go from a supervisor to a manager to a director to a VP. 
And I do think that every time we do rise in our heels, we, we it is going to feel wobbly and it should because it's going to stretch us. But there's something about um, when I walk in my heels, my back is straighter. That's what helps me walk stronger. And so I've just always used that analogy to reminding myself of you know, that next level. Um, and it's okay to stumble, but practice practice in places where everyone's not watching yet, um, but be determined. Sure, walking your leadership. That's a, such a great, great way to put that. And, and Nikki, any closing thoughts on this from you? I agree with Erica Joy. You need to walk in your heels, but you need to fall in your heels as well. So when you fall, fail fast, right? Learn from it and regroup, but also remember to record your wins as a new leader. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot to be done. Um, and think of all the incremental steps that you're taking and record those. Um, but look for uh, others to form relationships with, fail fast, record your wins, um, uh, and just execute. Uh, I think it's, you know, if you just make sure you develop your plan and execute, you will be successful. But you got to have your relationships, your allies, your supporters, all of those good things. But as a leader, know that you will not move alone. You've got to take your team along with you in every conversation. Absolutely. And, and Shelly, any closing words of wisdom from you? Yeah, I would just tell young women leaders to find a mentor and a sponsor or an executive coach to help them talk things through, to prepare these conversations and to assess the situation that happened, you know, afterwards. Um, also don't accept the behavior. I found that I did that early on in my career. I, um, I accepted it. I, I let people overlook me and, and um, don't let that happen. It's hard to do, but really find somebody to help you find your inner courage and just find a way to either be recognized or change jobs, but don't accept the behavior. Absolutely. And that'll also help you, you know, find your strength as well. And, and last but not least, Dr. Herbert here. Yes. And I, you know, I agree what, with everything that everyone has said, um, especially Nikki, when she mentioned about documenting your wins, if that is the one thing that I say over and over and over and over and over again, is to tell women to document their wins. Because you know, sometimes no one knows what you're doing. They don't really know the results that you've bought. They don't know what you bring to the table. They don't know how much money you save the company. They, they don't know any of that. So unless you have that documented somewhere, it kind of falls on deaf ears. So when it's time for you to do your negotiation, when it's time for you to speak up at the table, you know, no one has that background. They, they don't really know sort of what you've been doing, you know, during your time there. And to know that leadership is really a journey. It's a marathon and not a sprint. You know, you take baby steps and you just kind of continue to help to build yourself both personally and professionally. And um, over time, you know, you'll be able to, like Erica Joy said, walk in your heel. Absolutely. I think that two takeaways there I'm hearing is, you know, finding your support system is so important. And then being a voice of your own advocate for, for the work that you're doing each and every day. Well, that is all the time that we have left for today. I want to thank our four panelists again for their time and thoughts today. We really appreciate each of them taking time out of their busy schedules to be here with us today. And thank you also to our attendees for taking time to be part of the Becker's Women's and Diversity Leadership event. Please be sure to check out the schedule for some of our other great sessions going on. And please let us know if you have any questions or feedback. Thanks again for joining us and we look forward to having you at future Becker's events.